0: Hey, Exponential Family, Carrie Lattisser. And I'm so excited to be here with you all for a very special episode uh, with co-authors of The Starfish and the Spirit. I'm here with my friends Rob Wagner, Lance Ford, and Alan Hirsch. And we are joined today by a special guest, Linda Burquist. Uh, she's a church planting catalyst. Linda, give us a little bit about your current context and how you're serving.
1: Yeah, sure. I live in the city of San Francisco. I've been here for about 25 years now. And my job is helping to start all kinds of churches, um, all kinds of ethnic groups.
0: And um, I've actually been church planning for about 40 years now. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. We had uh, last week kind of episode one of a special launch episode for the book. And then here we are back for week two. Uh, Some of you may have joined us last week. And I want to invite you again to be putting your questions over in the chat. We want to try to get to some questions and Q&A here as we're able to. Um, Linda, we're delighted to have you as a part of this conversation. And we're actually going to start with, you know, we've been seeing just a steady stream of crash and burn stories from high profile leaders and ministries. And I know this book really sets up a new paradigm for leadership. So with zero intent to shame anyone uh, here, and let's just diagnose this a little bit. What, what is happening that this continues to happen so consistently? And more than anything, what can we learn from these situations?
2: Well, I, I'll, I'll fire off just a few initial thoughts. I think there is a knee-jerk reaction where people are disappointed in the particular leader. And there's a sense that, well, they weren't authentic. They didn't have enough accountability. And I don't think it's so much about the individual leaders as it is the form of leadership and the culture that it creates, their structures and systems that have become normative in the church. And uh, a human soul can't bear the weight of it over a lifetime. Yeah. And so we've imported in many ways kind of a Babylonian system of leadership that Jesus called his church out of. And we have very strict hierarchies um, with a few at the top and sometimes literally one person at the top. And their function is kind of a pseudo head of the church um, rather than like a s- s- circles of mutual submission of elders, which is, you know, Paul didn't set up lead pastors.
3: Mm-hmm. He
2: set up circle of elders.
3: Mm-hmm. And that
2: doesn't mean there, there aren't um, spiritual parents. Like there's different levels of influence. Um, but that's why we wrote this book. Most church leaders have not been trained in that kind of mutual submission team of peers. <laughs> How do you reproduce that? so that there's these reproducing circles of leaders rather than a hierarchy. And that hierarchy I think is crushing a lot of souls.
0: Yeah, that's well said. That sort of single single leader at the top where decision-making revolves around them. And as you said, the weight of ministry is unsustainable for those leaders in that type of culture and system. Um, Lance, did you wanna add to that? Just this pattern and trend that we're seeing?
4: Yeah, well, um, just along with what Rob said, and this is this is one of the, the mantras that that Alan has said for years and years and years is that we're perfectly designed to get the results that we're getting. And yet we constantly ask every time another leader goes down, we go why is this happening? Or, you know, why, why did it? Well, it's our system. And it's just we're pressing this out. And it definitely has a lot to do with uh, just like Israel wanted a king. And, and, and the Lord said, well, I want to be your king. Was, they said, no, we want, we want a man. And so it's, the church is very much like that, is that we want one person to pin all of our hopes and our dreams on, but then we can pin all of our blames on that person, too. And so until we get to a place where we actually go into the pattern um, that Jesus and uh, the writers of the epistles really give us a ton of help on, even their language to create our leadership cultures, we're just gonna keep getting the same thing that we've been getting until we change our systems.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Linda, would you speak into this for us a little bit as well?
1: Yeah. Um, One of the things that I'm finding is that um, as a female, that's not how I'm supposed to lead in our culture. I just never learned how to lead like that. And so I've never had to submit to being that kind of leader because there was always the um, expectation that leadership was going to come out of spiritual and relational um, kinds of authority mm-hmm. and not positional authority. Um, in fact, somebody told me that in my D. school. He said, you know, um, there's all kinds of ways to have uh, uh, authoritative relationship, and sometimes you need to have that but you, you're not looking for that it's not about position it's not about um age it's not about gender it's really about the relationship you have with christ and the relationship you have with other people that kind of investment and that's what gives you um, that, the leadership that you're looking for not position ever
0: yeah that's good alan anything you'd add to this just initial question of how we've gotten to this place and what we can learn from it to move forward
3: well, you know, I think um, I, I'm always amazed that we've <laughs> we've ended up with that because I think Jesus is reasonably clear, <laughs> um, very clear, actually, and I think it shows that we don't take Jesus that seriously, mm. despite of the fact we claim to be. You know, he claims claim him as our head. He says, "The kings of the earth exercise their authority as benefactors, top down, you know, uh, kind of approach." Um, you know, and they, they lord it over others. And he says, it shall not be that way among you. And he points to the child. He says, the, the greatest shall be the least is, and he points to the child. And you think, oh, yeah, that's Jesus. He's a kind of radical, you know, kind of dude. Let's, let's go to Paul, right? Let this mind be yours that is in Christ Jesus, <laughs> who being the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But emptied himself and took the form of the servant, That's the lowest place, and he's raised to the highest. And I, I it, it just amazes me that 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 we've been able to kind of legitimately, well, legitimize this form of ministry, ministry and leadership in in the Church of Jesus Christ, where it's forbidden by our Lord. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we have to correct this, or we continue to have the same outcomes. Mm-hmm
0: yeah the content of your book gives us an invitation here to pursue some different models right a different way of leadership that's quite different than this and i know many people i hear from church leaders and um elders and you know board members consistently right now saying what do we need to learn and how do we pursue a different way and i know you guys give us a framework for that the the middle section of your book the starfish in the spirit is entitled creating a culture for multiplying leaders and so this is a shift for us now that we have reimagined the church as a missional movement, which we got to talk about extensively last week. If you missed last week's episode, there's a replay available for that. But we have to recognize that just not just any form of leadership will catalyze and sustain this decentralized network form of the church. So in the next kind of section of the book, that center section is when we begin to look at the ethos and language and practices required to create a leadership culture that will multiply for starfish style leaders. So we're going to spend some time today unpacking that, right? The starfish style leadership. Um, I want to talk about the light loads leader, starfish. Lance, I think this is you here. Uh, the light load leader starfish helps leaders equip others in a five fold fashion with five, postures distributing the weight of leadership throughout the entire body rather than on one on the shoulders of a few. Uh, paint the picture for us of that starfish. But you're muted. It's not a zoom call until we say that, right?
4: That's well, it's because I have <laughs> literally three dogs plus my daughter's two dogs.
0: <laughs> so I'm like
2: I love that this is real like right? old dog house. That's
4: right. That's right. They're in another room <laughs> but I still don't trust them. So <laughs> um and I've been trying to exercise dominion over them, and it's not not been working out. <laughs> well. so, um, yeah, so this light load leader, this really goes back to what Jesus said. Um, uh, you know, come to me, uh, and I would love it if we could just like for a a, a leader's Bible, we could say, "Come to me, leader, uh, all you who are heavy burden. You know, I'll give you rest." Mm-hmm. And because he, he he says, you know, my load is light, and my my burden is, or my burden's easy. My load is light, you know, it's, and so, but most leaders, leadership is a, is a heavy, heavy, heavy load. And, you know, we believe that there's a, that there's a different way. And so there's five points that we mention in the light load leader. So the first one is what we call macro manage, macro management over micromanagement. So we always hear about micromanagement and probably every one of us have, 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 have been under bosses or leaders that micromanage. And so the point that we want to make is now that there should be a macro management. Actually, there's more management takes place under what we would call starfish leadership because everyone is self-managing themselves and they are being held accountable to do so. And so you actually have a higher degree of accountability because people are accountability for the, they have to be accountable for the promises. They have to be accountable for their pledges and they have to be accountable for, you know, what they produce. And yet we are we hold one another under uh, mutual accountability. We're not just accountable to one or two higher ups, mm-hmm. which we see in, in a lot of in a lot of churches. The second thing is we talk about equipping over directing. So this comes where we're letting go of the old management theories, which came from the Industrial Revolution, where uh, pretty much uh, um, everything was run on qu- quotas and clocks. And so it was just about getting widgets produced, and and pe- people could be replaceable if they weren't catching up. And so you usually have, in a in a you'd have in a big warehouse, there would be a guard, <laughs> looked, what looked like a guard tower in the middle of it, and there would be a, the, the 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 house boss up in this uh, window, four four windows around, looking at everybody and screaming orders at everybody. And that's where we got our management systems that have come into, and we've imported them pretty much into the church. And we think that people have to be managed. And so we're always directing people on how to use their time and how to use their schedules and setting their goals, yada, yada, yada. And so this changes the role of a leader to say, no, I'm an equipper, which harkens back to Ephesians 4, right? The apes, prof, apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher, given to equip the saints to do ministry. So as Alan says continually, he's been saying it for years, Ephesians 4, we believe it's not a leadership text. It's a ministry text. And it's a body ministry text. So equipping, over-directing. Then we talk about partnering over paternalism. In overwrought, managed, hierarchical systems, the overriding spirit and ethos of it is patriarchal. There's only one or two adults in the room. Everybody else is going to be treated like children, told what to do, when to do it, where to do it. And we're saying, no, oh, we're to be partners, and that's the language we see throughout the scripture. We see it Paul's language about—I don't know—over a hundred times He's mentions coworker, co-fellow. Um, this this harkens back to what Jesus said about being yoked with Him. It's it's all tied to the same word, which, by the way, in the Greek is synergos, where where we get synergy. So when we move into more of a partnership with our peers. Then we get more synergy. And then we talk about spiritual over industrial. So it's more of a spiritual relational type of leading rather than coming from the industrial world of managing and directing people. And then we talk about coaching over bossing. So it really changes the roles of leaders and it brings a lot more joy to the leader because rather than being a boss, now I've become a mentor. I become um, someone that is raising someone else and my joy and my hope is to is is to see them in, empowered. And it's not that I'm giving them power. And that's one of the one of the mistakes I think that we make is we talk about empowering people. Well, if I empower someone, I can take the power back. So I'm not giving them power. What we're doing, we're saying we recognize the gifts and the talents and the anointings and the callings in your life. And we're just taking the tethers off of it that either your experience or your mind or someone else put on you. And so that's a big part of it is that it just changes the role and it brings a lot more joy to leading, Mm -hmm. I would say.
0: I love the way that you're even talking about this as empowering. You talked about that like um, team collaboration and team accountability in ways that we walk together and not, again, not hierarchical, but there's peer accountability in that. Uh, Linda, you're a a guest practitioner who embodies so many of these things. Talk to us for a little bit about what uh, equipping looks like for you and in your movement.
1: Yeah, so um, actually, my first church plant was a couple um, months after I became a Christian. Um, And that was 40 years ago. So I went to an Apache reservation in Arizona. They asked Mm -hmm. me to help plant a church, I did. Then, two years later, I went to seminary. And while I was in seminary, I planted two churches. And back in the early 80s, there were not these conferences about church planting. There were hardly any books, hardly any classes. We just did it. And I, and I feel like when I read um, the, the part um, in Starfish uh, Spirit about radical minimums, um, the essential marks of the church, et cetera, I, that's all we had. And mm. so for me, even though we're planting some churches that are like that, equipping means to me is carrying those things out. How do we um, help people to be community, to worship, to help discipleship to happen, et cetera, et cetera. So um, you know, how we help people walk in their vision 4 gift. Now, sometimes there's a church start that needs something like right now, we're getting ready to plant a church among people from a, um, a Muslim unreached group that's just really new to the country. And the person the church that's interested in this need to understand culture and context. So we want to put them in that. Um, sometimes well, we had somebody from a country who came here as an asylum seeker. And this couple was um, sleeping in a twin bed and they didn't have anything. So we had to get a bed for them. I mean, so equipping means providing for the needs that exist and then putting somebody in place, a team in place with them so they can operate together. Um, we... Um, organization North American Mission Board has um a kind of a um something called pipeline that helps to develop leaders at various stages, but then we also do things like um we send them or we'll bring um tea for tea training, you know, or Curtis Sargent will come to the area mm-hmm. and do the training that he does, or I've, I've already bought some of my turf planners Starfish Snyder because what I really want to do, I mean, Starfish. Spirit, I'm sorry, it's really hard not to say fair that. Fair enough, fair Spirit enough. we do that. Um, but um, um, to already sent that to them to begin to show them some of the ideas they already have. But we've probably got about a half dozen movemental things, not necessarily all with my own group, but around the San Francisco Bay area that we're watching and trying to, to stimulate and equipping means whatever they need for us to do to help them move to their next steps. It's not a formula, and it's always very, very relational.
0: So,
2: super helpful. Awesome, yeah.
0: Rob, are you going to add to that?
2: Well, uh, you know, for us at the Kansas City Underground, we're organized. Um, in fact, I can bring up a picture. I'm going to go ahead and do it. The way that we're organized is built around this kind of fivefold equipping. We have a two-entity structure. And you can see on the right side of that umbrella, uh, there's what we call a hub. And we conceive it as a mission agency. So we look at all of God's people, it's their birthright to be a missionary and a disciple maker. And you can see on the left side, there is a decentralized network of missionaries and and microchurches. But I want to focus on the right side, the way we've organized, unlike you know, a traditional church that has you know weekend services, and then there's a children's ministry and a youth ministry and a men's ministry, and so forth. The way we're organized is we only have one corporate gathering. It's an equipping gathering. In other words, it's a it's a leadership training, and we focus on skills and equipping for the missionaries and the microchurch leaders. Then we have you can see there's eight equipping teams. So personal calling and discovery. Helps each one of um, the missionaries discover to whom you have been sent. Uh, will help you discern your personal calling. Will also help you think about well, Jesus never sent anyone alone. Who else do you need to have on your team? And then also we provide for them personalized coaching, which is about soul care, spiritual formation, missional coaching. Then there's another equipping team that's called startup coaching. So you're a new missionary, you're a new disciple maker in a new context. We have a seven week equipping huddle that you go through with a startup coach Um, when they start making new disciples in a new context and a microchurch emerges, they um, then move to the ongoing coaching team, which provides you a successful practitioner who's a microchurch leader who then can walk with you relationally to do ongoing equipping and so forth. So we've just tried to reconceive um, equipping as the new normal in our culture. Um, and Alan, you'll be happy to know if you double click on any of these, it actually is, it's the fivefold, uh, it's a pest being fully operational. Like if you double click on personal calling uh, my wife leads that and she's prophetic. If you double click on startup coaching, the guy who leads that is apostolic. What a surprise and evangelistic, right? If you double click on ongoing coaching, the woman who leads that is primarily pastoral in her gift finances, double click on that. It's a teacher, right? So, um, we're, we're finding incredible fruitfulness organizing around equipping and those fivefold voices, seeing every single child of God as a missionary disciple maker.
0: That's awesome. For anyone that's listening, I have a question over here about an APEST issue that came in through the chat. Alan, is it possible to give us like the one or two minute APEST Overview for someone who's listening and hears us say that uh, what Apest actually I'm the Lord do? I'm the most of long it. answer. I can't do that.
2: <laughs> I, don't I don't know, know. if Al, can do that. I'm not Come sure. Come on, I, if he's right. Right Yeah,
4: does he know that much about this?
3: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, Apest, of course, is the Ephesians four uh, typology um, of ministry apostle, which is your basic your missionary functionality, pioneering, uh more innovation on the edge. Prophet is your alignment function to God. Um, This, you know, this keeping us tuned to God and his purposes, um, which is both through prayer and worship, but also in terms of justice and mission outwards. Evangelist is the recruiter to the cause, uh, the singer of the song, basically your inbuilt marketing department. Uh, the shepherding or the pastor is, of course, to look after community and make it flourish, teach us to bring wisdom and understanding. And uh, all these are primary functions of the whole ecclesia. before they actually, even before they belong to mark us or identify us as individuals, they belong to the church. They always have, because they're part of who Jesus is. And Jesus bequeaths them to the church in the ascension. The church then is the body of Christ or the embodiment of Christ and his purposes. And, and these are fivefold. I, I actually believe, Kerry, that, that the fivefold contains all, and I mean this, all the functions of ministry are contained in the fivefold. Mm-hmm. There's nothing missing there. And therefore, it's a great way of covering all the ground. But it requires that we have a proper understanding and a non hierarchical understanding. That is, a, that is a very, very dangerous twist. Mm. Uh, that we bring CEO types of leadership Mm -hmm. thinking to the idea of apist. What it is is about the ministry of all of God's people says to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ has apportioned. it, And then he gives apist Um, to each one of us means each one of us, not not a group of CEO kind of leaders. Mm -hmm. And then leadership is implied in that because leadership is just about influencing others and leading them. So you can get better at this. It's really, leadership is an extension of discipleship, really. Mm. You, you're a disciple before you're a leader, and you're a minister before you're a leader. So I think, you know, once we recognize this, you unleash incredible agency and power among God's people. Mm-hmm. So, yes, it, it's a huge key.
0: Yeah. yeah. And for us to actually live that out, that requires our interdependence, like to have the fullness absolutely. of the expression of that requires interdependence and collaboration, not just a single as Jerry, your CEO model.
3: Mm-hmm. I need you to be me. So, and I know, need
0: you. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah.
3: Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And so that's, that's the beauty of it. I mean, yeah. honestly, there's just a magnificent thing that Jesus has set up that we actually need each other at a deep level.
4: Can, I, can awesome. I pop something in there and, you know, just for the listeners um, and that we're not saying that there's no leadership. And you just said that, Alan. I mean, th- there is leadership, but the leadership is the fruit of this rather than the focus of it. So, you know, a lot of times I like to say leadership, it happens out of this. And as you said, Alan, leadership is is a fruit of discipleship. And so, when we're talking about you know empowerment taking place, we definitely recognize that in any size of a group, whether it be four people or it be four hundred people, that there's various levels of giftings as far as the amount of power that people have in those giftings, just as long as their experience, et cetera. So the issue is we're not saying everybody has the most has the same amount of power. But what we're saying is the leader's job and the leader's goal should be to see that everyone else is their most powerful self in the Lord. Mm -hmm. And so that's, you know, that's our intent and that's the spirit of it.
1: Mm -hmm. Can I add something, please? Um, so the other thing is is when you have um, at least three or four leaders that are working together and a group of people working in the context of different ga- gifts, what you have in a, is an essential function for movement. So one of the the kind of the runners that movement um, runs along is this is networking. It's um, is, is how this networking happens, which makes you able to pass from group to group to group through that network
0: of relationships. You don't have movement unless you have networks.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
4: Absolutely.
0: Rob, one of the questions that just came in here, and Linda, I'd love to hear from you on this as well, is just what are some of the resources you're using to empower believers according to APEST? So it sounds like you've got some of your structures set up that way. What sort of resources are you using to help empower people along that route?
2: Yeah, unfortunately, I can't find any at all. I wish someone would live their life <laughs> developing these. Wait, oh, wait a second. That's what Alan. Uh, <laughs> so uh, 5qcentral.com, uh, uh, mm-hmm. just going to do a uh, little promo there for Alan. Um, basically, let me show you where it intersects. So when... When someone uh, is engaging in the underground and they become what we call a missionary, which is like they're, they want to be activated as a disciple maker. They want to know their personal calling. They go through that personal calling discovery process. And one of the assessments that they take is actually the APEST assessment. Um, and we give them a few other ones, too. So right from the very beginning of their journey, and we walk them through something we call the missionary pathway. It's five phases of training that they're equipped through. And right in the beginning, they're discovering, you know, their primary, wh- which is typically your motivation, and then your secondary, which is the way that you express it. You know, so I'm like an apostolic um, prophet. My teacher's pretty close, to, So my motivation is always going to be to send and to extend, to take the gospel to new places, to see, you know, gospel breakthroughs. And the way I'm going to communicate that is going to be this combination of sort of the prophetic voice and the teaching voice. Um, And so every missionary learns their APES profile. And part of what we do then is when missional teams are forming, people are self-aware, like, wow, I'm a shepherd teacher. I'm going to need to pray that God will fill out the rest of my team. Or sometimes we do, we find like, oh, these six people have a similar calling to the same pocket of people, but they don't actually know each other yet. So we'll do these introductions Um, And someone had asked, I saw in the chat, like, is it systematic or do you just let it be spirit-led? It's actually both. So we create systems where people are discovering their apest profile, um, but then the spirit does start organizing around this. And what we find is by the time a microchurch emerges from new disciple-making, typically very early in the life of the microchurch, you're going to see apests begin to emerge. Like the Holy Spirit does actually seed this, organize this strategically. It's not something that we have to manhandle or crowbar, but we do have to be aware of. So those APES profiles are fantastic. Another thing that's been developed is modules of training for each one of these. Mm -hmm. Um, So our missionaries get the training module on their primary. um, And it's basically about four weeks of training. Um, And then, like I said, when we're developing any kind of leadership team whether it's governing elders or it's the equipping teams, that's a big part of our logic when we're organizing to make sure that we don't have any gaps.
0: Yeah. Your attentiveness to it allows you to really steward that well.
2: It literally exists from the individual level through every single uh, rung of circles of influence sure. in the underground.
0: Sure. Linda, what were you going to add to that? Um I don't have much to add. I send people a five Q,
1: but one of the other things is is letting people watch, not being afraid to let people watch you practice it. So I'm also apostolic prophetic, and what that leads me to do sometimes is that God will say that person there, call that person out, and have a conversation. Um, I've I've seen um, young people, um, even online, and asked about whether they're called to ministry. There's always people that that God is leading me to speak to and then people watch that and they go they come back years later and they say you're right this is what i'm doing with my life right now so i think really acknowledging it as a practice in a way of life mm. is something that i would add to it and the other thing is that most organizations that do assessments really assess for um, pastor teachers and they do that because they're looking for people that are going to stay in a location and start a large church we do not assess generally for apostolic types. Mm-hmm. I I like to actually add my own apostolic kinds of uh, questions, and then um, give give responses to people who are being assessed.
0: So, so you're doing your own discovery work in there.
1: Yeah,
2: <laughs> exactly. Hey, uh, Carrie, I'll mention one other resource too. It's called Five Voices. It's developed by Steve Cochran, who is mm-hmm. part of 3DM, and that. Uh, is a very rich system with very practical tools. So, for example, they'll talk about every single one of the APES profiles has a weapon system. So the apostle, his weapon system or her weapon system is the bazooka. They'll just blow you away. The prophet, they're the sniper, you know, or the Hulk, you know, and they go through each one of these. And it helps you recognize the shadow side of your gift. And they've got a lot of little tools like that that we've made mm-hmm. operational and have really made a big difference.
1: When you say that, it makes me think that another kind of thing that I look at it, I ask people how they played when they were a child. So <laughs> for me, I always played. I built cities and I played with my brothers on rector uh, sets and Lincoln Logs. Girls didn't have those toys back then. I never played with the Barbies, the dolls and stuff like that. I was was not pastoral. <laughs> I was always, so I watched kids at a very early age uh, and, and then ask people questions about that. And you know, your sniper, etc. There there are ways that children play that is inherently built into them by God.
4: When they're I was the one them. that was throwing mud grenades into the cities that you were building.
3: I'd love to there's there's a new tool coming out, um and developed by a friend of mine called uh, in um, Rick Newton, um, called Impact Notes M. P A C T ImpactQ mm-hmm. and um, what he's done, I mean, I mean, they've, his business guy, you know, spent a huge amount of money in developing a stunningly good tool. It's just right. being released, and it's it's really about teamwork, and it's really for marketplace, but it's taking fivefold of five Q intelligence and applying it. They've done it, and it focuses primarily on teams. And uh, they've they've done mm. a stunningly good work on it. And um, I really recommend it uh, that people look at that too. I do. Yeah. Just new, brand new. Before but they've spent we four, move five up. years in the making. It's really mm. good.
0: Yeah. That's a fantastic resource. Thank you for sharing it here. And we'll send it along with resources from our time as well. Before we move on to the other um, starfish in the middle here, I want to just hit, there's two questions in the chat that came in, both related to APEST. One is for for traditional churches that are structured around ministry departments. What are some practical ways to shift to a more APEST oriented structure? Would you guys speak to that? guys and gals
3: you as I'll well do a very, i'll do a very quick version of it i mean often people ask us about your elders right so you know you know we, we have an eldership and what they mean by that is that there's a very set kind of structure and when you say well okay if you think of it this way think of leadership in in, in as a dimension just think of it as like a kind of a line going down or kind of a bar think of apist as a ministry dimension that cuts across it so where they intersect, where they intersect, you can have apest elders. And so, what you want to do is to look at your elder eldership team um, in light of apest and begin to populate it and to balance it out. Because most of our our ways of leading are asymmetrical. We over lean onto the shepherd teacher because that's one the one we've we've pretty much only legitimised over the years. So, we, but you can just rebalance it throughout your system because you see it as ministry, not leadership. at least in the first instance. Mm -hmm. And it infuses everything that way. It's like a fractal that goes throughout the system.
2: And to extend that logic, you know, depending on the size of your church, um, let's say you've got six departments. You begin to do that in every single department. Or it's like we're building a leadership team, and our primary goal isn't to do the ministry, but to equip others to do this ministry. And we want to get all five voices into every leadership team. Um, and then there's simple exercises that you can use. like last week we talked about voice order. like when you're dealing with a decision, you start with you know shepherds and then you go to the prophets and then the teachers, then the evangelists and the apostles because evangelists and apostles usually take up all the oxygen and then everyone just goes with whatever they said. like no you guys go last, let's get the full wisdom of Apest going on this decision. Uh, and there's a couple other simple tools like that. When you begin to use those regularly, all five voices are singing in harmony, and it actually begins to self-correct whatever is unhealthy in that church or in that department.
1: I can add one thing to that, and I'm thinking about movements, not, to, not just kind of uh, changing the structure of the church, but actually getting ready for movements. There are some churches that are basically... Um, by whom they try to reach and the, the techniques they use for reaching, they're basically homogeneous. Networks work best when they're heterogeneous. And so what I would, if I had time, what I would try to do is structure in heterogeneity so that you could actually have something more movement oriented because another runner for movement Is segmentation, which means you have many things that kind of look different than each other. And I've seen movements fail because everybody is the same. So I would not, if I could help it, I wouldn't take a church that's homogeneous and make it into and try to structure it so it is movement. I would diversify it first and then make that other change.
3: Mm. Mm, And and the good news is that God has already given you everything you need to get the job done. Yeah. It's already. Being given just activated.
1: Yeah.
4: Good. One of the things I'll add into that, because it's an issue of structure, right? I think that was even within the question. Um, now I've, uh, I've built, I think the last two houses that we've lived in and I've rehabbed older homes. Um, it's much easier to build a new home than it is to rehab an old home, by the way, (laughs) but I know this, um, when you go into an older home or an older or an existing structure, Mm -hmm. uh, the tendency is to say, man, I'm just going to start, I'm going to, you know, demo day, you know, chip gains, favorite day, just start knocking things down, tearing things up. And if you do that, you can really get in a world of hurt. So let's say that you're wanting to move a wall. It's a structure. Once again, you got to find out, is this a load bearing wall? And a lot of times, when we go in to change structures and affect the structures in our church system, they are load bearing. And we just start going in with chainsaws and and hammers and start tearing stuff out. And then when the roof caves in, we're like, well, what happened? I wonder what happened. Well, you have to take it a little slower. And sometimes you have to build a partition wall that holds up that wall you're going to take down. And so one of these these tools that everyone's mentioning here, it's really important to just kind of start feathering some of this in and just have fun with it and enjoy it. And, um, it's kind of, it kind of becomes kind of like a skunk's work, skunk works type of a, of a practice. And, and so we, a lot of times we'll talk about doing an alternative track and inviting some people to come in as kind of a practice group and start experimenting with some of these things. So, Mm -hmm. uh, that's kind of putting up the the wall that holds up the structure that you're eventually going to remove. And, but you're just doing it with some patience.
2: Can I give just a quick example of that? Sure. So, um, I've, I've worked in prevailing model churches most of my adult life. So, in the last one I worked in, um, they gave me an office. And then the team that reported to me had cubicles. So, I didn't want the office. I made it a co working space for the team. And then we began to assess around APEST, training in the tools. and created a new culture within one department of the church basically taking the starfish principles and what happened is within a couple years uh a couple other teams were like wow i kind of want to be on that team that's a really they have a different vibe there's a different culture they're having so much did you see their their co-working space that's cool so other teams started like what are you guys doing how's that work and so it's a yeast in the dough strategy, like I didn't have to go in and go, we're changing everything here. It's a new day. There's a new sheriff in town. <laughs> it's like just slowly, gradually implement this kind of new culture. And it starts infecting the rest of the organization without being a threat, because it mm-hmm. actually was very fruitful that like they saw the impact in terms of what's the product coming out, which is sometimes what this, you know, the hierarchy is looking for
0: which is great change management tactics in general right you're you're building the new peer you're casting the new vision before you're taking anything away you're introducing them to a better way and then there's such little resistance because they're seeing the fruit from that already right and they're drawn to that instead of being aware of what they're letting go of and this brings into into play
4: a tool that a lot of a lot of us all have used is the diffusion of innovation and that whole bell curve that starts out right with the innovators and the early adopters. And, and we get so overwhelmed because we think we've got to change everybody's mind and you really don't, you really do not have to change everybody's mind. Only about 16% of the people's mind needs to be changed. But the problem is, is so many of us, uh, uh, typically the early adopters, the innovators and early adopters, a lot of times are the apostles and prophets and they're very gung ho. So they're the ones that come in with the sledgehammers and the hard hats and everything. And so it takes real patience to say, no, I'm going to work with the early majority and the late majority and let them really influence this thing along.
0: Yeah. I'm never going to forget Rob's imagery of the bazooka right now. (laughs) (laughs) That is the tool that they carry. Here we go. Uh, I want to get, move on to this next starfish and talk for a few minutes about the structure starfish. So the structure starfish helps leaders structure around organic systems by repeating five patterns in every cell of the body. Uh, Lance unpack these for us and then we'll kind of go around and, and share more and pile on there.
4: Yeah, okay. So when we talk about the structure, Starfish, once again, you can't um, expect to just pull leadership out, uh, a, a hierarchical leadership, or race a hierarchical leadership and expect in that void for a new, uh, you know, more of a Starfish type or more of a, a peer leadership to evolve. Um, so we have to be intentional about it, we have to be strategic about it. And so the first point on the five points is what we call circle cells. So this is once again, this is moving from the from thinking in pyramid type of thinking of leadership to thinking in circles. And it's because the circle is the sign of community. I mean, that's the picture of community. And so now rather than looking up or looking at the back of heads, we're looking at faces and we're leaning in towards one another. And so we talk a lot about that. Number two is catalyst spark. So once again, we are moving from being CEOs to being catalysts and saying my job here is to spark things. Like I like a lot of times, I like to say it's it's kind of like the hockey referee. The hockey referee is not really ruling the game or running the game, but they're just dropping the puck and just keeping the game going. And so a catalyst is constantly moving in and out of the rest of the group and finding out what the gifts are, what the callings are and joining people. So I like to say collect to connect, connect people. Uh, Collaboratively co-laboring. Once again, this goes back to that co-worker, fellow worker type of an idea is that I don't have employees. And it's, it's one of the dirtiest words that you can ever hear in a church is that a church is employees, because really, if you were to look up the word employ in the dictionary and look up the word hireling in a concordance, the definitions are the exact same. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we should not be calling our staffs, our employees. Um, they are our co-labors. They are our peers, um, and that's one of the things about when you have peers, uh, peers means a couple of different things. It can be someone that is at the same level with you and someone that you look into. And so a lot of hierarchical leaders are not peers because they never look let anybody actually look into their lives. So we talk a lot about co-laboring. Uh, then organic hierarchy. And this is a real important part. So. In, in if you hear our language a lot of times, you know, uh, speaking negative of hierarchy, we still believe in a hierarchy, but it's an organic hierarchy of processes and practices and micro agreements that have to be in place of that void of a, high, of a typical hierarchical leadership system. So there's a lot of systems that come into play. There's a lot of practices. There's a lot of, uh, of, of micro agreements and processes that we have to agree to as a team to make this stuff work. And so we talk a lot about that in the book. And then number five is elder and mentor guided. And so once again, uh, one of the things that, uh, that I love that Rob says is that for the church, we don't have organizational charts. We have family trees, hmm. right? and, and that's the language you see all throughout the new Testament. You see sibling language, brothers and sisters, Right. And so it's not bosses, it's not leaders, it's not executives. And so we need to slow down and listen to the language that we've used and go back and say, well, how biblical am I really? If we want to be biblical leaders, right? Mm
0: -hmm. Rob Allen, what would you want to unpack of those five areas?
2: Well, I would just say that uh, where we end that starfish on the elder and mentor guided, you know, the image we get of development in the scripture is that of a, Infant, a child, a young adult, a parent, and an elder.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And you see Paul walk Timothy through that whole process. And just like the church is a spiritual family, period. It isn't a metaphor. It's absolute reality. And it's designed to run like a family. And that is the organic hierarchy.
1: Mm-hmm. It,
2: it's it's what Linda talked about. It's relational and spiritual influence, that's based off of investment and then development. And the goal is to have just like a family tree. It's like these reproducing circles, right? Of mothers and fathers and children and mothers and fathers. And hopefully it's great, 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 great grandparents. And yes, as a great, great grandparent, I have a lot of stature and influence, but I'm not trying to control what's going on four generations down with some kind of policy manual, yeah. right? It's it's. And that's, that's the culture that we can recreate inside of any congregation. Um, And like, uh, like uh, Lance said, um, we're not removing leadership. We're actually elevating leadership influence in the life of every single person to their maximum level of Mm -hmm. influence, to the level of giftedness and calling that God's placed on their life Mm -hmm. rather than, you know, again, creating the hierarchy that ends up suppressing that. Sure.
0: Linda, give us a little bit about how you do reproducing circles of reproducing leaders and downplay hierarchy in your movement.
1: Yeah. Um, let me kind of address something else that kind of came up while Rob was speaking though right now. Um, so um, if you look at um, an organization like a McDonald's and what they do is they multiply something over and over and over mm-hmm. again. And that's a franchise and mm-hmm. i don't know if you guys ever saw um uh what's it, the founder is that what the name of it is That yeah. oh, right? yeah. and that is an extremely um hierarchical organization everything has to be done exactly the same and um and oh, to do this movement thing and to do something relationally is the exact opposite but i see today i see so many uh, church organizations that are calling what they're doing movement, but really what it is, is a franchise. Mm. I mean, you can do multiple high quality Starbuckses that all look the same, but no matter where you put them, um, but they're all going to be the same. And that, that doesn't help. So kind of avoiding franchising is one thing I would say for movement. Another thing about, um, the, the hierarchy for me, um, is, um, that, um, uh, it, They just should depend on um, something like there's a process that I see in a lot of movement kind of books. I know David Garrison, who you all quote, I haven't finished everything in in, um, Starfish yet. Um, You might talk about this, but one of the things you see is that there is a process of you you get with people. And what you do is you model, you assist, you watch, and then you leave. Do You guys write about that? It's a really important part of reproduction. So you're out there. So um, actually, um, it, Jesus modeled a way of life of his disciples, and he said, Whoever wants to meet my disciple, must deny themselves Mm -hmm. take up their cross and follow me and heed this way of life then he assisted them and helped them to put their faith into practice so Simon calls Peter and Andrew and says come follow me I'm going to make you fishers of men and then there's his watching he watched them he coached them Um, he called the 12 together sent them out and brought them back together to discuss what they had learned and what was hard for them and then finally he leaves he left earth stays connected um it's low i'm with you till the end of the age but he stayed Mm. connection so that process again of model assist watch and leave i think is um one of the processes that we would uh, put in place Um, i also think for me again um uh, at this age of life what i'm trying to do is give away everything i am and it's kind of and i think that if you um don't, don't be afraid to put older leaders in your processes because what they want to do is carry on uh, the future and um, they, they want to give away to the future is their their last opportunity to actually make an impact and um, so just I felt like I had that to add to this group um, as the, the oldest person here um, and then um, uh, the third thing that I want to say is I've already talked about movements a couple times but movements is something I study. Um, I've I've got two books that I'm looking at right now. This one here, especially, uh, People, Power, Change. And it was written in 1970 by uh, Luther Gerlach and Virginia Hine. And they they actually talk about those three things necessary for runners, the interconnection, Mm. the decentralization, and the segmentations. The decentralization is not doing franchise with it. And if you want movement, all three of those principles will, will be in place. I really, sometimes you can find this for a dollar. Sometimes you find it for a hundred dollars on eBay or something like that. Um, but the principles of movement are in place. If you don't centralize and and create hierarchy and you know, anybody who wants movement will keep that in mind.
0: Very good. Yeah. It's so good. Then to give us a little bit for you on the role of catalyst in a movement just as we talk about these five areas how do you see that play out
1: um yeah well again that uh, relational and spiritual trust and that equipping uh that um bring people into the picture who can mentor for whatever their position is. So whatever the need is to put people in place, not having to be the one. Um, for me, knowing my um, my field is really important. I spend a lot of time doing very nerdy things like researching and then also things like praying. I, um, we're starting a church with people who are weaker right now. It took five years of praying before God raised up. All, all within a couple of weeks, God raised up a local group of churches an individual church a seminary student who doesn't care if he's paid or not and um a prayer team um after five years of praying for this people and found, and then somebody gave me some money to give to the strategist for any kind of activities that he wanted so lots and lots and lots of prayer uh Trent prayed 20 years for a um an Afghan um, pastor. Now I have an Afghan pastor who is helping to get churches off the ground in multiple cities around the world. Um, so I, p- prayer for me is a, is the major um, activity of a catalyst. And then knowing your area subjectively, objectively, et cetera, et cetera. And then just be uh, just watching for the people that God wants to put in place for mm. it. There's more, but that's probably enough. <laughs> yeah. It's
4: so, so
0: good. Yeah. Go ahead, Lance.
4: No, I was just saying it's good stuff. I'm just drinking it in. So that was it.
0: Yeah. It's so good. Rob, I know you wanted us to spend a little bit of time really drilling down on circle celled and catalyst sparked those sort of spokes on this starfish related to structure. Anything else you want to unpack there?
2: Yeah. I I want to show you um, the way we're trying to embody this, you know, imperfectly in the Kansas city underground. Um, We have what we call four organizing identities, so if you think about the usual social contract yeah. in kind of the Christendom model of church, there are certain identities that um, the children of God are asked to adopt. It usually, starts as we want you to be an intent attender. That's one identity, and then we want you to be an inviter, um, and then typically it goes to like maybe be a volunteer. And then some kind of member, maybe it's a small group member or a church member. And then, of course, we want you to be a giver, especially a tither. Right. And those are kind of the typical organizing identities. That sh- And those are good activities. They can be transformational. But let's be honest. You can do all of these. Attend, invite, volunteer, give, be a member and never be a disciple maker. So there must be a fatal flaw in the system if those are the primary identities we're asking people to grab onto. So we're trying to find, okay, what are the, um, the identities that are re- rooted more deeply, like in the nature and the character of God and, and his mission in the world? So we have four identities. The first one is that of a missionary. Um, and a missionary is an ordinary person who plants themselves among an unreached pocket of people so they can plant the gospel and make new disciples. So, we currently have 32 microchurches in the Kansas City underground. None of those were Christians that we organized into the groups on the backside of a service somewhere. It was all ordinary people who realized, I'm called to be a disciple maker. I've been sent to this unreached pocket of people, and we equip them to know how to do that. If you make new disciples in a new context, suddenly you have a new circle. Are you with me? It's circle cell. And what it is, is a microchurch emerges. So people ask us, um, how do you plant microchurches? And we tell them we don't. We plant missionaries who plant the gospel. Mm-hmm. And When people say, how do you plant a microchurch? Usually what they're saying is, how do you get a meeting going somewhere? And for us, do microchurches have meetings? Absolutely. And actually quite a few of them. Is a microchurch a meeting? Absolutely not. It's an extended spiritual family that's led by ordinary people. And they seek to live in everyday gospel community, and they own the mission of Jesus in a network of relationships. And it's built around those radical minimums of worship, community, mission that we talked about last week. Mm-hmm. So you see the missionary never goes alone. They'll have a team or a partner. And then this new circle of new disciples emerges. That's a microchurch. And then when that begins to reproduce, you can see there on the bottom left, you have what we call a collective. And a collective is a network of four to six microchurches. So now you have a circle of microchurches, right? And then we raise up governing elders Mm -hmm. that provide hyper-local oversight, and they're actually successful disciple makers, so they know how to actually be an elder. And that collective then is a network either by geography or it might be an affinity group. Um, and so you can see it's the same circle cell that's being reproduced over and over again. It's the same fractal. And then this gets to catalysts. The hub is fundamentally an apostolic equipping team. It's a team of catalysts that exists to support the collectives, the microchurches and the missionaries. So mm-hmm. for a city of 2.2 million, we think we're going to need at least probably 25 to 30 of these apostolic equipping teams that are sprinkled throughout the city so that every missionary and microchurch is close to one of these catalytic equipping teams. So currently we're two years into our story. We have seven collectives. Uh, we have three of these hubs, apostolic equipping teams, and we're trying to take this logic of the, that circle cell, that simple fractal And we try to keep reproducing it at every level. So you're actually reproducing these small circles, which makes it manageable for ordinary people. The whole thing is bivocational Um, because you're not trying to manage a large kind of unwieldy structure. You're, you're still looking at a circle of four to six or so.
0: Which totally takes us right back to where we started when it relates to ministry weight, right. And what we're inviting people, what the role of pastors and leaders is within our structures of the church. Linda, were you going to add to what Rob was sharing there? Did you see my face? (laughs) I could just, I'm trying to, yes, when you guys lean in. I think it was great. And I have taken
1: myself different screenshots, even though you're going to all send it to me, this this is really good stuff. I'm happy to be with you here. Um, But I was going to add something um, um, that I've been trying to incorporate into movement. I think it has something to do with it. The idea of the four spaces of belonging. Mm. And there's a book called A Place to Belong that was written a number of years ago. And then um, Edward Hall, the uh, anthropologist, I kind of captured that, and Jared Woodward wrote on it. But I find that even across cultures that p- and, and different lifestyles, people have an affinity towards more than one space of belonging. So the public space is the large space, social space is kind of the medium size, 60 to 100. Then you take it down to the kind of the 12 disciples stage for um, what is that called? It's called
2: some
1: personal space. space. And then that intimate space is the (laughs) very four gathered together. And I feel like um, that there are multiple portals or gateways of entry. And to think about in which group, which of those is a good entry. Um, Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's networking the groups together, sometimes it's doing some kind of um, outreach that you do together or just caring for a team and just different ways to do it. I'm finding that people from India that I work with actually are better than anybody else that I know of. They have a group and incorporating all four spaces of belonging. Mm -hmm. Um, But we're going to start using that for movemental stuff as well.
0: That's awesome. I'm so glad you piped in and shared that with us too. Having all four of those frames that play into how you're creating that structure Alan, were you going
3: to add something here as well? I was going to say something when we were talking about family. <clears throat> but actually, it, it's probably worth kind of saying here. I think the, the issue of family, you think about a healthy family, I and mean it it really, you know, love is an important factor in keeping it going. And how influence is given is you know, in relationship terms, because you've already got the investment of love or the precondition of love. But also in terms of re- reproduction, um, you know, people concerned about um, passing on tradition, you know, and this could be as like a hundred year old or 200 year old or just a 20 year old tradition. Um, the, the best way to preserve tradition, if you think about it, is not to wear your granddad's old hat, but to have children right um, the way to preserve traditions have children one because they they carry your genetics into the future but they also if you do your parenting well they will carry your story into the future as well um, and that's the way to preserve it if you go the other way and you force you know granddad's old hat on them um, one it's bad parenting and and in fact your, your your kids will always resent you so I think the the family metaphor is exceedingly useful The fabric of of movement and community, and so I think these guys are doing a good job of it, you know, in building it in and taking metaphor seriously. It's not like like uh, Rob was saying this is reality. It's a statement of who we are. Yeah. It's not just a pretty little idea. Mm-hmm. We are family, you know. So there's something that's living into the reality of what God has made us to be.
0: Mm-hmm. Lance, were you going to add to that?
4: No, I did nothing worthwhile. I was just laughing. The reason I was laughing was when Alan says the metaphor of Granddad's hat. I just kind of wanted to, what I saw was I saw George Costanza sitting in the coffee shop when his dad walked in with the Festivus pole (laughs) to resurrect Festivus. And poor George just, he was just. It was just killing him. He hated that the feats of street, the, the airing of grievances, all of that. And I was thinking, George Costanza would so agree with what Alan's saying right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, that was my
3: contribution. And we never. It's I think so of George good. Costanza. I think of Todd Wilson.
2: <laughs> oh, there we go. I <laughs> like, went well, we hey, there. We talked
4: about. I hope there won't be another there. webinar next week now. Cancel. (laughs) There will not be a third
0: webinar. I'm glad we can officially say we talked about Todd Wilson. I'm grateful for that as a landing place to Alan to think about. I mean, we talked about church structure with a business CEO model and that invitation to so no, 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 no. What if we revisited this as the family model, just that imagery even as a place for us to land episode two, I think is fantastic. Uh, I'm not going to be with you all for episode three, but I want to make sure to just name here Starfish four. I was really committed by reading about the self-management starfish. And so pick up this book if you are interested in what it looks like to create cultures of highly trusted, highly accountable leaders, really practical tips in there. Don't miss out on this opportunity. You can head to the starfishinthespirit.com for more information. And then week episode three, right, is next Monday, same time, same place.
2: Got it.
0: Linda, thank you so much for thank joining you, us. All of you. Good yes, honor. thank you. Great thank to learn from, from you. Thanks, Carrie.